Welcome to the Western Health Podcast, If Only Someone Had Asked, Family Violence, a Health Service Response. I'm Lucy Vandenberg, a Western Health staff member and presenter of this podcast. This series comes with a content warning. We'll be covering topics that may be distressing for people with first-hand experience of family violence or who have seen a loved one live through it. Help is available. Contact Respect on 1800 737 732 or you can see the supports listed in the show notes. We'd like to acknowledge that we have recorded this podcast on what is and always has been Aboriginal land. We have covered some troubling topics in this podcast, if only someone had asked. But progress is being made. In the past decade, we've seen a focus on national approaches to complex problems, including child abuse and family violence. And in late 2021, we saw the publication of the National Elder Abuse Prevalence Study as part of the National Plan to Respond to the Abuse of Older Australians. The study is the most extensive empirical examination of elder abuse in Australia to date. It found that one in six older Australians had suffered elder abuse of some kind, including psychological, physical, financial and sexual abuse, as well as neglect. This number surprised even the experts, and it indicated that the problem is far worse than previous estimates. The upside is that having this improved evidence base on elder abuse in Australia now paves the way for a more targeted and effective practice and policy response. There's also a growing impetus on addressing elder abuse effectively. We know that the group of people aged 65 and over in Australia is expected to more than double from 3.8 million to 8.8 million in the next 25 years, as Dr Kay Patterson, Australia's Age Discrimination Commissioner, has aptly said, the culture we set today is the culture we inherit. Western Health's Elder Abuse Prevention and Response Liaison Officer, Carla Wilkie, uses the World Health Organization's definition of elder abuse, describing it as a single or repeated act or a lack of appropriate action occurring within any relationship where there's an expectation of trust, which causes harm or distress to an older person. Elder abuse is a form of family violence that's experienced by people in later life, so people over the age of 65, but may also affect prematurely aged people. So people over the age of 50, including First Nations people and other people who may experience earlier signs of age-related illness or disability that puts them at, a, I guess, a greater risk of experiencing the types of abuse that are more typical in later life. This includes people, say, with uh, long-standing physical or mental health concerns, people with disabilities, and those with social issues like alcohol and other drug use, deep poverty or homelessness, for example. With family violence, we know that the majority of perpetrators are men. But the National Elder Abuse Prevalence Study found that elder abuse usually occurs at the hands of adult children, with the exception of sexual abuse. Like family violence rates of elder abuse rose sharply with the onset of COVID-19. Experts believe that risk factors intensified, with increased unemployment and mental health issues to adult children who were returning to live at home. Carla says that the one in six ratio of people experiencing elder abuse was estimated to have increased by around 99% during COVID. 
So that's one in three older people experiencing abuse in any 12-month period. And in fact, the severity and reporting of elder abuse in our elder abuse project at Western Health went up by between 76 to 400% when compared month on month to the years before the pandemic. We also know through Victoria Police data and other research data that around one third of elder abuse cases are intimate partner violence and most often gendered, driven by gendered concerns. And this intimate partner violence can be decades and decades long. But that also means that around two thirds of elder abuse um, involves other family members perpetrating against an older person. It's really important for healthcare workers to know that perpetrators of elder abuse are most often adult children, but they can also be any other trusted person. And at times there might be more than one perpetrator, which adds to the many complexities of intervening safely with elder abuse. Western Health social worker Kelly Plazajek saw firsthand how COVID exacerbated intergenerational family dynamics and isolated vulnerable older people from their usual health and social supports. During the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of older people and their adult children have, have lost work or have ended up in circumstances where they've moved back in with their parent. So that situation has escalated in a few cases where there's um, a greater risk of financial abuse. So a family living off that older person's um, single pension, for example, and the expectations that they have about their, their feelings of entitlement around getting that monetary support. And quite often the older person will feel a bit obligated and it can be really hard to say no to family. That can be something that often happens, unfortunately, and as well as neglect. So it's been another really sad thing over the past two years is that people's access to health and even social support and just every daily living tasks. So not having the access to the support they need or that they may have um, heavy reliance on family members to do that for them. And there's a dependency there. And when you have a perpetrator using that position in order to prevent their access to healthcare or services coming into the home. But it became quite easy to hide some of the abuse that was happening, unfortunately, given perpetrators the bit of a prime environment to exercise some more power and control, unfortunately. Just as gender inequality is seen as a contributing factor to the occurrence of family violence, experts believe that ageism, negative and limiting social attitudes towards older people, is a contributing factor to elder abuse. The National Plan to Respond to the Abuse of Older Australians recognised that ageism can contribute to an environment in which individuals who abuse older people fail to recognise that their behaviour constitutes abuse. Other members of society fail to notice these negative behaviours or take action to stop them, and older people experiencing elder abuse blame themselves and are too ashamed to seek assistance. Here, Carla describes the different forms of elder abuse. We know through the Australian prevalence data that emotional and psychological abuse uh, comes in at 12%. So 12% of people experiencing abuse are experiencing this. This includes verbal abuse, pressuring, bullying, threats to harm the older person or to harm another person, and often threats to harm pets as well. You know, a common verbal disparaging comment is, you know, you're losing it, you've got dementia, or if you don't do this or give me that, then you'll be off to the nursing home. 
Inclusive of this is also social abuse, so limiting access of an older person to particular people or places that the older person wants to engage with. And somebody experiencing this sort of abuse would might appear unusually withdrawn. They might have expressions of loneliness. They might say they're missing other people and they may well have low self-esteem. Neglect is the second most common according to the prevalence data. And this occurs when somebody's everyday needs are not being provided. And this includes things like caregiver restriction to food, hydration, medical or dental care, but also access to things like warm clothing, services and supports. A common sign is also an unkempt home and poor personal hygiene of either the caregiver or the older person or both are also key signs of neglect. Neglect can be unintentional as when a caregiver doesn't have access to services or equipment or supports or perhaps doesn't have the personal ability to meet the care needs that are required. Or neglect can be intentional when somebody intentionally withholds access to services, equipments or supports. It's believed that the increased financial stress caused by the economic impacts of COVID has increased incidents of financial elder abuse, including pressure to change wills, to misuse of bank accounts and powers of attorney. This pressure typically comes from family members with a strong sense of entitlement to their parents' assets. Financial abuse is perhaps the most well-known form of abuse. It's certainly the most highly reported, but it's not the most prevalent. So according to the prevalence data, which is the gold standard at the moment, it's 2% of, of abuse. So maybe the older person is, it might come to our attention in healthcare if the older person is unable to pay their bills. There might be unusual bank account activity. There might be unexpected debt, or perhaps the older person is being asked to sign documents that they don't understand. Intent is important, but sometimes people, you know, I've gone to get mum's groceries and I've skimmed $50 off the top. It's really what we see historically is it can be the the thin edge of the wedge. It starts with small amounts and then if there becomes quite this permissiveness of access and entitlement, I think one of the ways clinicians can seek to determine what's happening is to search for language and behaviour that speaks to entitlement because that will tell us a lot about how people feel about accessing the older person's finances. Financial abuse and psychological abuse often go hand in hand, and the follow-on is often neglect, where an older person can no longer afford their medication, rent, you know, the small co-payment for their aged care services, the transport to their GP or, or other similar things. And the consequences are that they may land in hospital with an exacerbation of their chronic medical condition. And especially under COVID conditions, people present to healthcare, we patch them up, we send them home. But if the root cause hasn't been addressed of the person not having enough financial resources to be able to get the things that are going to keep them healthy, then they're going to land with us again. So it makes good sense to screen people for abuse, knowing that we know how prevalent it is and how much it's increased during pandemic. Carla says that physical violence and sexual violence were also reflected in the prevalence data, sitting at 2 and 1% respectively. Here she takes us through some of the signs an older person has been physically or sexually abused, much of which is confronting to hear. It generally presents as unexplained illnesses or unexplained injuries and we might see an older person shying away from or appearing fearful or nervous around another person. For example, somebody might present with a story 
about injuries from a fall or falls that maybe don't quite add up or where the story seems to be changing over time is a common one. Perhaps an older person used to be able to lift their arm up but they they can't any longer or they're in pain when they lift their arms up. The arms are a common site for rough handling which typically involves pushing and pulling. Older people are often on blood thinners or have thinner skin and have less sturdy bones. So injuries from rough handling and assaults such as non-fatal strangulation, hitting, kicking and pushing, they can have quite significant physical marks that are left. So it's important to explore those with the notion that this could be a situation of a fall or it could be a situation of elder abuse or both. The signs and symptoms of sexual assault in later life largely similar to sexual assault in younger cohorts, so including unexplained sexually transmitted infections, urinary tract infections, new or exacerbated incontinence of either the bladder or bowel, and trauma or physical injury around the genitals, chest, rectum or the mouth. The elder abuse prevalence data reports only 1% of sexual assault in later life. However, We know that 17% of Australian women and girls have experienced physical sexual violence from an intimate partner. And it would be naive to think that this magically stops at age 65. And in fact, according to Dr Catherine Barrett, who's a world-leading expert in this area, in terms of sexual assault against older Australian women, it's grossly under-recognised, under-reported and under-responded to. To many of us, violent or abusive behaviour like this directed at someone you purport to love, is unimaginable. Just who is doing this and what drives them? One of the things about elder abuse is that victim survivors and perpetrators are quite diverse. They can be intimate partners, but they can also be any other family member. So having an understanding of what creates more risk from the people around the older person can help us in healthcare to work out who might be using violence. We know that family members who have a strong sense of entitlement, who blame their behaviours on others or the situation, or who explain away their behaviours of concern, or have, I guess, a, a stronger sense of victimhood, are more likely to use violence towards older people. We also know that people who make disrespectful or degrading comments about older people may be using other forms of elder abuse as well. Additionally, people who are socially isolated, people who are living in poverty, those who are dependent on the older person for housing, finances and emotional support or other things are more likely to use violence or tactics to control the older person. Lastly, caregivers or family members with drug and alcohol dependence, mental health concerns and gambling concerns will also be a greater risk of perpetrating against older people. So I think it's really important to encourage an older person to talk about who are the people in their lives, what are their interests, what do they do, encourage that storytelling so we can get a stronger sense of who interacts with the older person and we want to be preventative. We'd prefer to put things in place to support an older person to mitigate the risk rather than have to come in and and address the elder abuse. As with family violence, the impacts of elder abuse can be devastating. 
The impacts can be anywhere along the spectrum of psychological distress to serious psychological and or physical harm. And this can result in permanent disability and death or mortality. The cost to communities also can be quite significant. So both in the impacts of elder abuse on family relationships, but also in areas where older people contribute to communities, such as in community volunteerism, where most often healthy, socially engaged older people tend to participate. When people are experiencing abuse, they're less likely to engage in their communities. Also, there is a greater public and social health burden as well created by elder abuse. So, for example, we know that victim survivors of elder abuse often go into residential aged care facilities prematurely and that they tend to be sicker. They often have more comorbidities than others and they tend to present to healthcare services with other ailments like falls cardiovascular symptoms and impaired management of their chronic health conditions. So screening for elder abuse in healthcare is essential as healthcare workers are quite uniquely placed to be able to identify and respond safely and respectfully to elder abuse. In previous episodes, we heard from health professionals and victim survivors about how it's vital to only ask someone if they're experiencing family violence when they're alone and to arrange an independent interpreter if language is a barrier. Carla says the same applies to elder abuse. We want to know what the older person thinks and feels and what their experience is rather than hearing it through the narrative of another person who might put their particular expectations or ideas on it. Additionally, it sends a message to the older person that potentially their voice has less value in the space. So it can contribute to internalised ageism and that can then increase a person's risk of experiencing abuse. And lastly, we don't really know whether the adult children are telling us exactly what the older person is saying. So we've had several instances where adult children are telling us about past histories of dementia-type symptoms and have resulted in older people, you know, being um, discharged from hospital to less than ideal locations like going into care. And later on, it's been found that these haven't been the case. Here, Carla describes some of the questions clinical staff can ask an older person if they think they may be experiencing elder abuse. Since older people often use different language related to abuse and violence, you might open up with a question around respect, for example. So you might say, you know, do all the people helping you treat you with respect? Or you might ask, have there been any instances when you felt afraid or upset? And by eliciting storytelling about different situations, you might be able to pick up on the behaviours of concern from that. You could also ask, does anyone stop you from seeking help from others? I think this is a really important question because it speaks to older people being controlled by others. And again, I'd encourage staff to elicit some storytelling because often the the older person will describe it in a different way than, than you or I would. Also, typically access to finances and assets of older people is a common driver of abusive behaviour. So it's important to ask, has anyone taken anything of yours without asking such as money or valuables. And then if you feel it's safe to do so and the older person, I guess, remains engaged, perhaps you might ask some more direct questions such as, has anybody threatened to hurt you or have they hurt you? And you might also ask, has anybody touched you in ways that made you feel uncomfortable? 
This last question is a gateway question to exploring threatening physical contact, but also sexual assault, which does occur in later life as well. Social worker Kelly also advocates for this approach. We're mindful when we're approaching a topic of elder abuse that it is something very sensitive and a lot of victim survivors don't necessarily identify that they are victims or survivors of elder abuse. Sometimes they um, tend to minimise some of the experiences that they've gone through and of course if the perpetrator is around isn't going to be a safe thing to discuss at that time. So we would approach a situation generally through explaining our role quite broadly and asking consent to complete a psychosocial assessment. So something where we're looking at psychological and social factors in that person's life, what was happening for them before coming to hospital, what's happening for them now and what do they think that they'll experience once they're discharged. So we look at a range of um, different things and try and do a bit of a risk assessment and we would probably engage the family member if if they were there and in a general way, but then also seek consent to see that patient again at another time. So if that was the case and it was definitely elder abuse, we would look at approaching that patient on a one-on-one confidential basis at another time when there was a safe space and way to do so. But sensitive inquiry, asking people about their family relationships if they've got any concerns. Are there any issues that they are thinking that may arise to them once they return home? So sometimes you can skirt around the subject before you get someone to divulge something. A lot of time people carry a lot of shame and guilt with them. So you might not get anything on the first go or the second or third go. So it's just about keeping that bit of an open door policy when we work with patients and letting them know that they're always able to share something confidentially with us. But of course, you've got to build that trust and rapport with people before they feel comfortable enough to um, share that with you. Once a disclosure has been made, Kelly and her social work colleagues can work with impacted patients to create safety plans. It's about thinking of different scenarios where the abuse may occur and trying to make a plan on how to um, seek safety if that was to occur or escalate. And through creating a safety plan, you can get into some education about the cycles of abuse and learn a lot more from that victim survivor about the strategies and strengths that they already have in place that they've been probably using for a very long time to keep them safe. So always putting them at the centre as the expert of their own situation um, and working from there. So the safety plan would be integral. That's something tangible that we can create a document together that hopefully that person has a safe space to keep or identifying supportive family member or friend or other support that can keep a copy of that. And, you know, that might be a situation where if that victim survivor is at risk of physical abuse from from the perpetrator and they do wish to leave the home, then it would be, okay, well, how do we practically do that? And especially working with, with elder people, there's a whole other range of vulnerabilities involved. So that person may be affected with by mobility issues or health issues, it might not be as easy as picking up the keys and and driving out of the driveway to somewhere else. So it's about really comprehensively involving that person's social support network. And if they don't have any social supports, looking for community services and programs that are going to be able to engage with them comprehensively. This patient-centred care 
working in partnership with patients, is so important in providing care and in the creation of safety plans. But what do health professionals do when patients have a cognitive impairment, advanced dementia for example, or when there are other barriers at play? The older person might be in the early stages of dementia or quite advanced dementia and are unable to advocate for themselves or engage a lot in the safety planning process. So it can be, um, you know, place them even more of a vulnerable situation. So in those circumstances, we would be looking hard to find a supportive family member, someone that we can then talk to and try and increase their capacity to advocate for that person and provide them with the support that they need to walk away and feel a bit more confident on how to look out for the, the rights and dignity of that older person. Other barriers are sometimes people's previous engagement with services may not have been good. So even contacting emergency services, people's fear of the police at times can can be a barrier for seeking that help in an emergency situation. So we need to reinforce that they're there for that person's safety, give them some education on things like intervention orders and what they can expect in a response. And sometimes that information is power and that can help alleviate some of those concerns and worries. Unfortunately, there's cross-sectionally the, you know, gender and culture and sexual orientation and a lot of other barriers out there that on top of age and mobility and, and cognition can make seeking support a lot harder. And we need to be mindful of, of looking at that holistically and, and addressing the barriers as much as we can. And of course, ageism as well. Some of the really harmful thoughts and beliefs and it does create a justification to some forms of elder abuse. It really is, is unfortunate. We see that as the most extreme version or outcome of ageism. So that is another barrier to engagement because perpetrators can often use that as a tool to um, disempower the elder person and make them feel little bit more worthless or that seeking support is harder. What are the other things clinical staff should consider when treating patients experiencing elder abuse? Kelly shares further advice. Some of those really little things that it can be but can make a huge difference. So updating next of kin details to reflect who that person wants as their main contact, putting an alert on EMR that there's an issue or a risk of elder abuse. And when we are documenting things in our notes too, it's um, something if we are putting in quite sensitive information to kind of recognise that in the notes as we're writing that. So we've got to be mindful of um, people having freedom of information and going through that process. We don't want perpetrators being able to access compromising information that may put that person at risk. When um, interacting with a patient who has disclosed elder abuse, to really um, employ some active listening and some empathy and, and compassion in your responses and making the time to sit down and really talk to that person about what they're going through. But we're all going to get older at one stage and it would be absolutely terrible to think of ourselves or anyone in our family having to go through anything like that. So really tapping into that empathy and being able to build that trust and rapport with that patient from that point is a really effective tool for engagement. If that person feels and knows that you care, that they're more likely to be able to share and disclose information with you and feel that their first 
point of disclosure and in a service system has been a really good one. So the skills that we um, have in our toolbox already that we can really use. And I think empathy is something that everyone in healthcare embodies. Hopefully this episode has provided some insights into elder abuse, its various forms and what health professionals can do to better support people experiencing it. Carla, Western Health's Elder Abuse Prevention and Response Liaison Officer, shares this final word. The challenge with elder abuse is chiefly that it's hidden, so we often have to go hunting for it. So I just would like to encourage healthcare workers, everybody, the people in our lives, all the older people that we know that we have contact with, just to recognise that it's likely to be hidden, recognise that older people don't often identify abuse as abusive behaviour, so they may not come and disclose it, but that there are things that can be done to support older people, and I'm here to support with those ideas. Thanks so much for listening to If Only Someone Had Asked. Thank you to Carla and Kelly for sharing their insights. If you are a Western Health staff member and you'd like help with best practice advice about what to do when you suspect, witness or someone reports elder abuse, you can contact Carla on elderabuseinquiries at wh.org.au. Thank you also to our producer, Susanna Cornelius. Finally, both in Australia and worldwide, we know that there is so much to do to end family violence, including elder abuse. But it's heartening to know that we have health professionals like Carla, Kelly, Asunta and Emma, who are all bringing their expertise, commitment and compassion to making a difference to victim survivors. Thanks for listening. I'm Lucy Vandenberg. I'll see you next time.